So back in May of 2004, there was a woman handing out flyers at the mall. She had made these flyers herself and she was handing them out specifically to women. She said that she wanted to help keep women safe. So the story goes that she had been to the mall shopping the very day before and when she came out to her vehicle, she noticed that she had a flat tire. So she pops the trunk, busts out the jack, and starts going to work. Suddenly, out of nowhere, this crisp-looking gentleman in a suit holding a briefcase offers to lend her a hand and change the tire for her. So she gratefully accepts. He finishes up and puts the jack, the flat tire, and his briefcase in her trunk and slams it shut. He then proceeds to ask her if she'll give him a ride to his car, which is parked in a different parking lot on the other side of the mall. She was a little bit struck by this. She was a little bit surprised why his vehicle was parked so far away. And he came back with having run into a friend in the mall, losing track of time, kind of losing his sense of direction, picking the wrong exit and ending up in this parking lot. And now he was running late. So she kind of felt like she was in a little bit of a pickle, him having saved her and all and rescued her from having to change her own flat tire. And she didn't really want to say no, but she remembered how he had just put her flat tire, the jack and his briefcase in her trunk before asking for this ride. So she was a little bit suspicious. So she told him that she would happily give him a ride, but she had just remembered that she'd forgotten one last thing that she really needed to pick up at the mall. Could he wait for her and she'd be right back? He said, okay. And she ran into the mall, finds mall security and lets them know what's going on. So they come back out to the parking lot and lo and behold, the business suited gentleman is no longer by her vehicle. So they pop the trunk, take out the briefcase, and take it to the police station. At the police station, they opened up the briefcase only to find a rope, duct tape, and some knives, which is absolutely shocking. Apparently, her flat tire was just fine. The air had only been let out of the tire, so apparently this guy knew what he was doing and had targeted her. So thank God she had followed her intuition and kind of put him off nicely and gone back into the mall. Who knows what would have happened otherwise. Have you heard the story of- And written on the wall- And everyone has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my brother. telling you stories of the old- There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. We want to welcome all of you fantastic listeners back. I don't know what I would do without you guys. You're like my favorite people in the world. Think on that for a moment. What about me? Um... Um, you're a very close second. Fantastic. Yes, yes, it's true. Our third, I like the kids a lot. Most days. Most days. Most days. 
Well, we do want to thank all of you for coming back. And as always, we want to thank you for leaving ratings and reviews. We've had a ton of new reviews to go along with our Magical Mystery Hat Contest. And some of our new reviewers include Colleen324, Sean8425, Lori B. White. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. No, that's one of the reviews. Oh. I'm glad that wasn't the title of the review. Oh, we've got some. Oh, don't worry. But of course, now is the time to pick our lucky winner. Drawing a name out of the magical mystery hat. And it is... Aki Egg. Yay! So Aki Egg and all of you, thanks for leaving reviews. If you would please send us a message and we will let you pick out a magical, just a story prize. And now for your weekly affirmation. You are all beautiful daffodils worthy of romantic poems a spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings composed spontaneously by a man with a ponytail and a velvet jacket. And you shine on, you crazy diamonds. That's not romantic poetry. Is it? I think it is. Um, spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings? It might qualify. <laughs> what if they're wearing flannel and have a man bun? <laughs> then tip him. For your cup of coffee and tell him you're sure his book of poetry will be a bestseller. That's an affirmation for you, Steve. Good job, Steve. Oh, I'm sorry. Steph. 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 And we do want to also encourage all of you to reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and other forms of social media. We post lots of fun things about the episode of the week. We also have our website, JustStoryPod.com, where you can see some Samantha's fantastic artwork for each episode and find all of our citations and sources for the show, as well as other fun, interesting information. Because we cite our sources. Boom. Drop the mic. Don't do it. (laughs) You'd kill me. For those of you who don't know, on our website, you can also find links to fun places like the Just a Story merch store, where we have a special trifecta jackalope product selection. It's uh, modeled on the three hairs, but they have horns because they're jackalopes. And I hear when you wear them, they sing. Mostly Waylon Jennings songs. Oh, that's a plus. It is. And that's our exclusive limited edition t-shirt. Only out for the month of May. And there are also other designs there as well. You can also go on there and find links to our Patreon page, which is a great way to support our show. You can make a donation and get fun, cool prizes such as stickers, extra episodes, or chances for a digital meetup. And you should all come to the next one. And for those of you who might be looking for one more way to reach out because we have not fully saturated your media diet... You can always call the Urban Legend Hotline. And that number is 512-222-3375. And there you can leave us a retelling of your favorite urban legend or your deepest, darkest secrets. So, Samantha. So, Jacob. Back to the story at hand. It's a doozy. A double doozy. An it's a doozy. No. No, definitely a double doozy. You're right. I had it right. So, this is a classic urban legend this is one that has made the rounds and has as they always do changed and multiplied and streamlined and added more detail taken away etc 
as urban legends do. And it goes by many names. You can call it like the flat tire. The wolf in sheep's clothing. Yes, the wolf in sheep's clothing. And that's really what this legend, this urban legend, is touching on. is that idea of the wolf in sheep's clothing. That someone can look innocent. And when you go to help them or you don't take heed of warnings. They can bounce. And eat you. Or your sheep. (laughs) And gobble you up. It's very scary. So wolf in sheep's clothing sounds nearly, if not exactly, kind of biblical to me. Well, it is. So it's hard to say if that's where the exact origin of the phrase comes from or if it was floating around before then. So you're saying that the Bible may have borrowed and not cited its sources? How dare they? How dare they? So in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 15, the King James Version, Jesus warns, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are raving wolves. It's a pretty alarming warning. And that's prophets with a PH, not with an F, right? What's a prophet with an F? Like a prophet. Like a money prophet. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> of course. I meant in the middle. Sorry. <laughs> you weren't following along in my uh, mental readout there. So he's warning against hypocrisy and that the true nature of people will come out by their actions. You will know them by their deeds. That sounds also very biblical. There was a Latin proverb at the time that translates to, under a sheep's skin often hides a wolfish mind. I want to know where they were getting their sheep. The sheep I've seen are not too bright, though they do recognize faces. They do. Which is very interesting. And we will not be touching on sheep again this episode. <laughs> this episode is all about sheep. Bah! Sheeple. Bah. Not again. So there is the classic Aesop fable, several really, about wolves and wolves in sheep's clothing. And the boy that cried wolf. You know, using that as the a frequent antagonist in the story. Yeah, it is the go-to bad guy of fables. Pigs, wolf. Boy, wolf. Sheep, wolves. And so Aesop was a probably real person who was a Greek slave who told many a story. And they passed down through oral tradition and were written down much, much later. These are good stories. They're great, and they're, but it's hard to say what the original forms were. I mean, that's with all good folklore. We just have a source to, to ascribe these to. Whatever flowed from it obviously changed over time before it was written down. Right, of course. Because it doesn't have to be literally divinely inspired by Aesop. Or maybe it is. <laughs> Don't start a cult, you guys. I see you thinking it. So there is the 12th century Greek rhetorician. Nikephorus Basilakis. Basilakin. It sounds like something Snoop Dogg would make up. And he wrote Pri Progymnasmata, which was a writing of rhetorical exercises. Mental gymnastics, right? As the Greeks loved to do. They did. And he had one kind of parable. Word to the wise. About a false disguise being dangerous to those who adopt it, saying... Once a wolf thought it a good idea to change his natural form, in order thus to have unlimited food. After putting on the skin of a sheep, he grazed among the flock, deceiving the shepherd with his trick. When night came, the shepherd locked the beast in the sheepfold with the other animals. The gate was shut and the enclosure completely secured. And when the shepherd became hungry, 
He killed the wolf with a knife. And so, the one who plays a role in a false disguise is often deprived of his life and finds his pretense to be the cause of a great downfall. Okay, well, first of all, that wolf is just terribly unlucky because he had a great plan. Let's be honest. It's good. It's solid. And what are the odds that you're going to be the sheep that the shepherd is like, ugh, you look tasty. Hey, he's been fattening himself up. Oh, true. So there's also the idea that embedded in that story that pretending to be something you're not can lead to your downfall. Right, which is different than the moral to Jesus's saying and also to later Aesop's fables. Which describe the danger is coming from an outside source. Hiding itself, hiding its true nature. Tricking you. Right, and so one is a warning against other people. And when is a warning not to do that? Okay, fine. So later, Laurentius Abstemius wrote a collection of original Aesop's fables. And this is probably where these kind of stories got taken into the Aesop's fable canon. And so in it he wrote, A wolf, dressed in a sheepskin, blended himself in with a flock of sheep. Every day killed one of the sheep. When the shepherd noticed this was happening, he hanged the wolf on a very tall tree. When other shepherds asked him why he had hanged a sheep, the shepherd answered, The skin is that of a sheep, but the activities were those of a wolf. This fable shows that people should be judged not by their outward demeanor, but by their works. For many in sheep's clothing do the work of wolves. The work of wolves would be an amazing metal band name. Just saying well look great on a black t-shirt it's wool metal (laughs) no no you can't pun that just did so when sir roger the strange produced a collection of aesop's fables in the 17th century he included the tales from abstemius of course changing it some and i love this part of the story what's only the skin of a sheep that was made use of to cover the heart, malice, and body of a wolf that shrouded himself under it. Hypocrisy is only the devil's stalking horse. That's got the feel of some romantic poetry right there. 17th century. Oh yeah, with an earshot. So we have here a collection of fables and tales and parables, and they're all about animals and i understand that we're supposed to you know read into these a little bit and take that giant leap of putting ourselves into the shoes nay feet nay hooves pause pause of the anthropomorphized animals but really like why has this got the sticking power why do we keep telling the story well let's explore that so let me tell you a story of a A real wolf in sheep's clothing. A real wolf in sheep's clothing or a metaphorical wolf in sheep's clothing? What would you like to hear? (laughs) A real one. Once upon a time. There's a wolf. Yes. And his name was Wolfgang. And his grandmother gave him this wool sweater. Was it ugly? Of course. Was he embarrassed? Of course. Did he do that thing our dog does when we put clothes on him? I could look really sad and despondent. And, like, go try to hide into the couch? Yes. Okay. And And, then what happened? And that's it. Your story sucks, bro. All right, let me try again. Bring me the metaphorical wolf. Now. 
So let me tell you about a man named William Deacon Brody. He was born in the old town of Edinburgh on September 28th of 1741. Now, he was the eldest of 11 children born to Francis Brody and Cecil Grant. Now, just to show a sign of the times, only two sisters and one of his brothers survived to adulthood. So, not liking those odds. Now, he was born in a well-to-do family. Oh, wow. That's the, really rough, though. Yeah. The Brody family, supposedly, according to family legend, had roots all the way back to the great King Macbeth. Great King? Depends on how you look at it. Surreptitious usurper, some might say, but, you know, tomato, tomato. He would have been fine. There are no tomatoes in Scotland. If not for not then. cesarean section. Yeah. Okay, so Brody... Of the Macbeth line, out damn spot, tell me more. So his father was the deacon of the Carpenter's Guild, which was a very powerful guild at the time. And his title deacon became part of his son's name, William Deacon Brody. Oh, okay. No, he grew up in the upper class society. He was five foot four, broad at the shoulder with narrow hips. Hey, if you turn that upside down, it's kind of like me. It's true. A sallow complexion and had a speech defect. And he also walked with this kind of swaggering gait. No longer like me. He was always dressed up as a dandy, described wearing blue suits, a steeped duffel gray coat with breeches and stockings, along with silver shoe buckles. That sounds quite dandy indeed. Deacon. And now he followed in his father's footsteps and became the Deacon of Rights and a member of Edinburgh's town council. I have a hard time imagining him as a carpenter. Now, he was obsessed with a play by John Gay. Okay. Called The Beggar's Opera. Okay, and just to be clear, this is not like a Feast of Fools thing that beggars do. This is an actual play. Right. Okay. And it's a musical. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. And the play, it plays on the idea of that flip between that kind of respectable and unrespectable worlds. Okay, so high and low culture and uh, darkness and light and dualities and moving between worlds and things. Because our hero, Cat McKeith. Oh, what a name. He was this respectable army officer that decided to become a highwayman. (laughs) Because he was just like contemptuous of authority and thought that any man could be bought. So pretty much the ultimate cynic, like Robin Hood, but cynical. No altruism to be found. Right. And he was basically just doing it because he could. Now, Brody went to every performance of this show. Holy shit, he's a fanboy. And memorized all of the songs. I think I sat next to this guy at a performance of Rent. Love you, Bo-M. So as you might have guessed, William Deacon Brody led a double life. Say it ain't so. I had no idea this was coming. So he had two mistresses. Well, that's, that's already a double life. And Grant and Gene Watt, and they did not know about each other. He kept them in separate homes. Well, that would be conducive to them not knowing about each other. I would think if they were roommates, they might catch on. Now, at night, he would put on black clothes and in the cover of darkness descend to the underworld, where he would go and play dice and cockfight. With birds. Roosters. Okay, just making sure. So I imagine him as looking... Like, a little cartoony when he goes out to do this. Like, kind of like John Cleese would play the part. You know, like, maybe doing that crazy walk, like, in a cloak. With, like, a top hat. With a top hat. Curly mustache. Curly mustache, yes. He's definitely 
tied a girl to the railroad tracks. Well, in 1786, he met three men. One, George Smith, who was a hawker and a locksmith. Andrew Ainsley. And John Brown, who was a former convict who had been sentenced to deportation after being found guilty for murder and theft. How did he get out of that? And why was he deported? No one really knows how he got out of it. It is always good to have a character with an ambiguous backstory who foreshadows coming doom early in a musical. Let's hear the cue for him. So Deacon had now got his gang together. Fantastic. A gang. A gang and a music. Are they sharks? Are they jets? Are they... Mm, kind of. Are they, they're snapping? They're singing. Oh, no. Oh, yes, I mean. <laughs> so he began to plan their life of crime and thievery. But all the while, you know, he had to keep up his appearances on the council and keep up his respectable life. Fantastic. Yes, of course you do. I mean, when you're a carpenter. <sighs> so Brody was the brains of the operation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, he and one of his compatriots would go to visit the merchants. And as Brody was keeping them busy, one of his little cronies would go with a wax-lined hand. What do you mean wax-lined? It like- was wax. And he would make an impression of the keys. Where were the keys? How do you get the keys? They would just hang them on the door, near the door, because this wasn't a town with a lot of crime. Okay, so they're making impressions of the keys, and then they go and make copies of the keys, and then they come back and unlock the door and waltz right in. Exactly. Interesting note, Brody was the brains of the operation, but he was also the choreographer. (laughs) Because from 1786 to 1788, they did numerous crimes. They would steal goods, they would ship them down to England and sell them, and then they had somebody like laundering money. So they have like Dandy McButterby there as their fence? Now, one of their largest crimes was whenever they broke into a tea house, stole several pounds of precious Chinese tea. With their pinkies held aloft the entire time because they are nothing if not proper gentlemen. Well, I mean, you don't want to mess up the impression. (laughs) The wax impression. Fine, fine. Now, this tea house was owned by none other than Mr. Andrew Carnegie. Wait, this is too early for Andrew. This is, it's his like great great grandfather. Oh, fun ancestry.com find there. Um, so Andrew Carnegie was an American mogul uh, of the pre-trust busting era that would be in league with people like Vanderbilt or the Rockefellers or the Morgans. Right, but now he owned a tea house. Right. So while we have the American tycoon, we have the the Scottish Tycoon, if you will. Oh, God. You did yeah, it. I did that. You're welcome. So as he was committing these crimes, he would sing... Shut the front door. ...songs from <laughs> the Beggar's <laughs> Opera. And we're singing, and we're robbing, and give me a spin, Georgie, give me a spin. And a heist, six, seven, eight. Brown, you're throwing off the ripple again. And so it's important to note that he was doing this just for kicks. Oh, and the kicks were fabulous. Right? Like, very rockettish. The show could be put on at Carnegie Hall. And one day it will be. Okay, so, I'm imagining that, like, as he's singing and he's twirling and the cape is flowing and he's feeling the dim glimmer of, you know, those those candlelit lamps on the streets, he's, like, belting away and two of his compatriots are shielding their faces in embarrassment. 
hoping that no one notices this dandy singing and dancing as they rob things. And then there's the one guy, the one guy who's almost learned the words. Like mumbling through it. A light and just hitting the ends and like he knows when to spin a little, but he's really bad at it. It's my vision for this. Well, even though you might have that fun vision and he was doing this for fun, like burglary was punishable by death at the time. Oh, just death? That's it. Oh, cake or death. So in 1788, he was caught with loaded dye when he beat James Hamilton, the head of the Chimney Sweep Guild. Okay, cut to enter Dick Van Dyke, looking much chagrined, snapping angrily and saying, Chim, chimney, chim, chimney, chim, chim, tree, like Deacon Brody. And there was a fight. There was a physical fight between the two. I imagine a snap circle ensued as the music rose. Well, and Hamilton complained that there are living instances of men, though born to independence and enjoying most ample fortune, can intermix with the very lowest class of the multitude. Okay, so one, why is he picking on him for mixing with the lowest class of the multitude if he was intermixing with him and he is the head of the Chimney Sweeps Guild? I'm not sure on the ranking of the guilds at this time. Okay, and two, fun fact, he's actually an ancestor of Alexander Hamilton, no, who is also not. the star of a musical. No. <laughs> no, that's I mean, just, Maybe, they could be related. It's made, I made it up. I it's made it time. up. You never know. He's probably related to the guy who went in the mummy case, though. That's probably true. So at this time, Brody began to plan his grand caper. He I'll was, show everyone anonymously. He was going to rob the general excise office He's a troll. of Scotland where all the taxes were collected. He's the like precursor of an internet troll so hard. Well, Brody would visit his relative that worked there and while he was there, he would, you know, watch the guards, memorize their movements, learn when they were changing, mm-hmm. shift. I mean, it's like a movie. Mm-hmm. It's like a heist movie. And how excited was second cousin Timothy that his dandy fine cousin was making visits to the excise office every day? And how much did Timothy have to tell him about his stamp collection? Thank you, Timothy. I was not sure that you were still collecting stamps since last we talked, which was yesterday, and I just had to come back down here and see you one more time to hear all about it, my God. Well, and as he was listening to these fantastic stories, he noticed that, just like in the merchant shops, the keys were just hanging by the gate. Oh. And so he was easily able to make an impression of them. Ah. Uh. Sneaky Pete. Now he collected his copy of the keys, three masks, lanterns, pistols, braces, three whistles, and they dressed in dark clothing and black slouch hats. A really important question. Yes. So important. What kind of mask were they? Well, it depends on who's directing this movie. Okay. So are we going with like gritty, dirty Zack Snyder? Never. Like, okay, good. No, Baz Luhrmann directed this shit and you know it. Oh, then they're fantastic. Are they like Plague Doctor mask or like Venetian oh, mask? Venetian. Venetian. Yeah. Fine, Venetian. Okay, I've got it. So Ainsley was left outside as a watchman as the other three broke in. Now, just like a movie, the deputy solicitor had forgotten some legal papers. 
and oh. returned in the night to collect them. Can you just imagine the scene? Like the it would be a back and forth you know, cross cutting between him like walking up and doodling with his keys, and then like lanterns like precariously perched as they fumble with the desk and trying to unlock it, and the tension mounts, and suddenly the warning whistle sounds. No. And Brody flees. It's all for naught. It's all for naught. Brushing past the deputy solicitor, who does not (sighs) recognize him. Because he's wearing a fabulous Venetian mask. Keep up. So the other men, Smith and Brown, did manage to break into the cashier's desk and collected a whole total of 16 pounds. I'm going to need help with that conversion. It's like a million dollars. Okay, no. No, it was very disappointing. This guy could have been friends with our uh, traveling mummy from way back in the day, the outlaw that wouldn't quit. Elmer McCurdy, isn't that his name? Yeah. Like, it would have been really good, good buddies. <laughs> but no, he was a great robber. This just did not pan out. This particular robbery, it's not making the final cut. So Deacon Brody went, rushed out of there, and went to establish several alibis, visiting his brother-in-law and then his mistress, and then going off to the pub. Oh, I'm sure he had to stop by and see his second cousin, Timothy, who updated on the stamp collection once again. I'm sure. And after this occurred... There was much kerfuffle. <laughs> well. And a reward was offered with cash and including a king's pardon. No, no. Now you can see how this might be important if you were, say, a convict that had previously been charged with murder and somehow escaped. Brown, you old dog. Are you going to turn coat on our dandy? Boom, boom. Well, so he had two options. He could either turn Birdie in and get the pardon. Or he could bribe Brody. So he could make Brody either come with him to the pokey and turn him in, get the reward, get the pardon. Or he could exploit, extort more money from Brody and allow him to escape. Yes. So this is the plan. We've got an either or moment of truth. I'm sure there's a great musical number. And... Be sure and listen to the overture at the beginning of the musical because you'll pick up on really important, important themes, themes, right? So when you hear boom, boom, that's Brown. And you know that he's going to be a very gray character. Well, so Brody hears about this and freaks out. Boom, boom. And he runs. <gasps> no, Brody, no. That's the worst thing you could do. Right, because he probably could have bribed them off. Really easily. Like with a chair. And with his alibis and his position... Not had any problem, but fleeing just made him look Oh, he panicked. Guilty. He panicked. And so when news of this reached the other men, they turned themselves in. Oh. State's witness. All three of them? Or King's witness. <laughs> yes. Oh, no, this didn't work out, did And a it? warrant was issued for Brody's arrest. Brody, so fool. Brody reached London. So he flees from Edinburgh to London. Yes, and he sets up a plan to flee to America. Oh, of course he does, because it's a musical after all. And what's a musical without a number about the new country? So he took passage on the ship Endeavor. Mm, quite an endeavor to get that passage, yes. yes but yes. he knew that he, they couldn't stop at a British port. Because the jig would be up. All right, so he most likely bribed the captain so that they would stop in Ostend, a Dutch port. Okay, so we figure out the bribery for the sea captain, but we don't put it together for our compatriots, our turncoat compatriots. They didn't even get the chance to try to bribe him. He was gone. Brody. Okay, so we're bribing him to skip the English port. 
Now, how do we explain to the other passengers? Well, they tell them that there's this sick Dutchman, John Dixon, on board. Uh-huh. He is ill and needs to return to Ostend. Now, this sick man gave the English passengers a set of letters to be delivered. Oh. And now when they returned to England, they started to hear all these stories of the robberies and this guy that fled. Oh, God. I'm flagging this as a really, really bad idea. They started to put two and two together, thinking of the big reward, uh-huh. open the letters, uh-huh. in which he implicates himself. But not only that, also outlines his plans for escape. Oh, Brody, you fool. So now we have in hand, in writing, not only kind of damning admission, but we also have a step-by-step plotting of his super secret escape plans. Yes. And they're turned over to the sheriff's office. The police go and search Brody's mansion, find a pair of pistols Mm. and a lantern often used by housebreakers. How did they know that? I feel like that's saying, like, a cracker often used with cheese. Like, I feel like a cracker could be used with anything. Well, he was eventually tracked down by British agents in the Netherlands and arrested and taken back and imprisoned at the Tollbooth Jail, which, of course, he helped collect taxes for as member of the city council. Oh, Brody. It's like rain on your wedding day or a free ride when you've already paid. It's a little too ironic, don't Don't you you think? think? So this was one of the most famous trials of the time. The court was completely packed. People were paying three, four, five shillings to Mm. get in. The deacon was impeccably dressed and the picture of respectability and defiance and in light spirits the entire time. Okay, only in Scotland could respectability and defiance be paired so closely together and not with a shred of irony. One of the jurors, William Creech, who hated him and would later write about the trial and publish it, called him an upright pair tot, tripping a white. I have no idea what that means, but I assume it's nasty. Yeah, it's like a nasty creature. Oh. So he also wrote, where will they meet with a more striking example that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked or a more powerful admonition of the self-examination of the motives of action. So he really was not fond of Brody. No. And so the lawyers pointed out that they couldn't exile him because they'd recently um, lost America. Whoopsie doopsie, I've lost a continent. Sorry about that, guys. Sorry. So they didn't have Australia yet to send people, and America was now no longer an option. No longer accepting refuse from the old country right like we talked about in the taily poe white trash episode that's where they were sending all the filth all the trash and Sup, fellas. no more trash heap Sup. so do you know what they did kind of in the interim one of the things they, they hung did? a lot of people they hanged a lot of people they hanged a lot of people that's true but they also had prison ships where they would just kind of put people on a ship and sail it around seriously i did not know that yes seriously i think they deported people for a, such a large variety of offenses it was sort of insane and like stealing a handkerchief or possessing a stolen handkerchief was one of the things that could get you you booted back in the day well so with all of this evidence against him he was declared guilty and sentenced 
to hang. No, no, not our dashing hero with his silver shoe buckles. Was on October 1st of 1788 was execution day. 40,000 people gathered at the toll booth jail to watch. Brought to you by taxpayer dollars collected by the man to be hanged. It's fantastic. Yes, yes. So he swaggers on the stage in his black suit and matching silk vests and stockings, you know, buttoned up to the chin. Ooh, I'm sure he looks quite, quite a gog. Well, especially next to his friend, Georgie Boy. Oh, poor Georgie Boy's gotta go too? Oh yeah, and he's just like, looks like death. Because mm, he's about to be. Die, yeah. yeah. And just there's a striking duality between the two characters. Right. So he's basically Captain Hook and Mr. Smee is kind of what I have in my mental mental viewfinder here. Well, he tells his friend, go up, Georgia, you're first. Oh, how sweet. Thanks. Thanks, boss. So now whenever it was his turn, he bravely asked that his hands be left free. And then he adjusts his collar and even places the noose around his own neck. Okay, so he's got silver buckles on more than his shoes. And now the gibbet fell twice, and he described the hangman as a bungling fellow who did not know his trade. It's like asking for it. I know. Now the third time the gibbet worked, and Deacon Brody was hanged. Now, That's so sad. It's such an anticlimactic ending to his tale. Now wait. Now during his last days, he requested that after he was hanged, he be handed over to friends. Okay, and that would not be an unreasonable request at the time because the bodies of hanged felons were often kind of pillaged for trinkets. Or medical schools. Uh, yeah, variety of vulturous trades would prey upon the bodies of the recently deceased, especially if they fell from a hangman's noose. So after he was hanged, he was quickly cut down and sped to the deacon mansion. Sped, you say? Now he had made plans to save his neck. Oh, I have a feeling you mean literally. Now, he hired a French physician, Pierre de Gravet, the professor of anatomy and physiology at the medical school at the University of Paris. Oh, what money can buy. Now, he had plans that they would cut the rope short to cushion the fall. Oh, yes, we've discussed the dynamics of all of that in our Halloween hanging episode. Wow, we discussed the dynamics of all that in the Halloween hanging episode. We're dark. True. And de Gravet... Rigged Brody with a steel collar. Shut up. And that's why he was wearing this buttoned up outfit. And Mm. why he put the noose on his own neck so that the hangman would not notice the steel collar. Schemey bastard. Now they also inserted a small tube down his throat. Okay, that's amazing because he was still going, you're first, Georgie boy. Right? To help avoid suffocation. And they also rigged these wires down both sides of his body from throat to foot to counteract the jerk of the fall. How the hell did they get away with all this while he was in jail? What money buys. Oh, what money can buy. Okay, so he is contraptioned up. Yeah, and his friends had pre-cut the rope. And that's why the gibbet failed the first two times. And he blamed the hangman? Poor form. Cheeky bastard. So now he is... Ha- damn, he was just brazen. Right? And so now he's hanged. He's brought back to the house. And lucky for him, de Grave is there with lancet in hand. No. Ready no, to no. bleed him back to life. Oh, de Grave, we were so close. We were so close. Shockingly. And- it didn't work. Didn't Just like work. it didn't work with George Washington. Stop bleeding people. Now he was given a Christian burial. And well, that was a nice. Placed nice. in an unmarked grave. Oh, well, that's not as nice. Now they knew where the grave was. 
which is important. Okay. They just didn't place a marker there. Because he was not allowed to have a marker because he, you know, was executed by the crown. Right. And he was, you know, stricken from the family Bible, etc. Ugh. Damn the luck. Okay, so... Again, kind of anticlimactic. I thought we were going to like, and he's resurrected, and he like, well, travels what? So years later, his tomb was reopened for repairs to the churchyard, and no skeleton was found. Not one bone. That's how you end a motherfucking musical. <laughs> now, of course, it was claimed that he was seen in America. Are even fighting with the revolutionaries in France. Oh my god, it's a Marvel style montage for the credits. Or he went to be in Le Mis. <laughs> Red. Okay, no, that's amazing. I love it so much. He's basically the scallywag Saint Germain. Maybe he was. Oh, now there's a thought. So that's amazing. And I want Baz Luhrmann to turn it into a musical like now, like right now. Like, if it's not on Netflix next year, I'm mad. I'm officially writing a letter in glue and glittering that son of a bitch. Well, so you're not the only person that thought this would make a great play. Oh, really? Am I in good company? Yes, a man named Robert Louis Stevenson. I've heard of him. I have heard of him. He writes about pirates and adolescent angst before that was a thing and being a duck out of water and he writes treasure island and he writes kidnapped and he writes a child's garden of verses which is strangely out of place in this context and he writes the strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde exactly on which Brody was a strong influence. Oh, you don't say the whole double life thing. Now, Stevenson loved the story of Brody. He grew up hearing it from his nanny, Allison Cunningham, who told him stories as he was sickly laying in bed. I have a feeling that was a naughty nanny. I have a feeling she was not supposed to tell these stories. It seems like too much fun. Well, she was a strict Calvinist. Oh, so this was a cautionary tale. Right. The Only the elect would be saved. And, of course, the levity of myth was evil. Oh, right. So here are true facts. And she may have been inspired to tell the story because the family had a chest that was most likely in his bedroom that was built by a Brody. By Deacon Brody? Either him or his father. Okay, either way, that's still really cool. So, wait, what happened to the chest before we go? It still exists. Oh, my God, that's amazing. What a treasure. I would totally freak out if it came through on Antiques Roadshow. So, Robert Louis Stevenson grew up in Edinburgh. His family were engineers, and they designed many of the lighthouses along the coast of England. Well, that is a fun fact that I did not know. Yeah, so they're very upper class, and Edinburgh was very different in the late 18. 18- Hundreds versus whenever Brody was roaming around. They still had the old town where he would slink about, but then they also had the new town. And is that where, uh, dare I say, beacons of upstanding morals, such as the Stevensons, might have taken up residence? I think you might say that. Okay. And so Robert Louis Stevenson wrote, Half capital and half country town, the whole city leads a double existence. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, while he grew up sickly, as he got older, he would often sneak out and go to the taverns and bars in the old town, imbibing in their wares, such as wine and beer and ladies and laudanum. You know, with a little more tragedy in their family history, either one of these guys could have been Batman. So, at his father's behest, very polite recommendation, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he attended school to be an engineer, 
But he did not see himself that way. He wanted to be a bohemian writer. But father, I just want to be a bohemian writer. I don't want to learn about the numbers and the scales and things. Yeah, so he just half-assed his way through school. Okay, well, you, that, oh, what money can buy. And through time, wrote many plays and stories. And in one poem, Stormy Night, written about seven years before Jacqueline Hyde, he kind of talked about the struggle with his dual nature, saying, And how my spirit beat, the cage of its compulsory purity, how my eyes fixed, my short lip tremulous between my fingers. I fashioned for myself new modes of crime, created for myself with pain and labor. I challenge any burgeoning writer to scan through your collection of works and not find your version of that poem. (laughs) Now, he did try to write a play about Brody. Spent years working on it. I challenge any burgeoning writer to go through your catalog of works and not find that thing that you've wrestled with since you had the idea 18 years ago in third grade. And it eventually was produced on a small scale. In 1883, he wrote about trying to create a play about Brody, saying, I had long been trying to write a story on the subject to find a body, a vehicle for that strong sense of man's double identity, which must at time come in upon and overwhelm the mind of every thinking creature. So he's trying to find a way to split the form, to actually split a person and represent it before an audience. Right, just that idea, that idea that the man can have this like kind of hidden nature, mm-hmm. this need for both sides. Right, and this is in a time before like the ideas of subconscious had been articulated. Yes, Freud had not been publishing this yet. He hadn't said anything. He said a few things. So in September of 1885, Stevenson was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. He was taking lots of laudanum, drinking heavily. His wife heard him crying in his sleep one night and woke him. I challenge any burgeoning writer to... (laughs) Now, he was so angry with her, and he screamed at her, I was dreaming a fine bogey tale. Oh, well then. And for the next three days, he feverishly worked on the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and completed his first draft. Did she try to Kubla Khan him? I don't think she did it on purpose. Oh, well, at least there's that. Now, he would often get ideas from his dreams. He wrote calling them brownies who play on a stage in the small theater of the brain kept brightly lighted all night. After the jets are down and darkness and sleep reign undisturbed in the remainder of the body. He's come so far since he was just insisting that he wanted to be a bohemian poet or a bohemian writer. Daddy, I want to be a bohemian writer. Support me so I can move to the old town. Oh, my God. I'm surprised he didn't want to be a carpenter oh with refurbished wood. Oh, my God. He's he's Robert Louis Stevenson. He has a man bun. He makes artisanal drinks with the finest stolen teas. Would you like to read my novel? The working title is Pieces of Eight, Parts of a Man's Soul. No. <laughs> okay, maybe I'll work on the title. So we all know the basics of the story pretty well. Yes, we're familiar. It's a good guy, Dr. Jekyll, fine, upstanding member of society, basically has a fight club self that we shall call Mr. Hyde. And Mr. Hyde goes on rollicking roustabouts that ultimately culminate in some pretty dastardly deeds. As the story continues and the plot thickens, as plots are wont to do, we come to the startling realization that Dr. Jekyll 
and Mr. Hyde are in fact the same person. It's hard to think of reading the story when it was published Mm -hmm. without knowing the ending, coming to it completely fresh and not knowing the end. So the story goes where two men are discussing an accident where some damn juggernaut tramples a girl. I'm the juggernaut, bitch! Exactly. (laughs) And he's forced to pay the family compensation. Now, curiously, he enters this locked door in the alley and emerges with a check signed by some upstanding citizen. He's a juggernaut and a thief. Well, so Utterson, one of the characters, kind of our intrepid investigator throughout Mm. this tale, fears that this Mr. Hyde is blackmailing the good upstanding citizen, Dr. Jekyll. Well, that would be terrible. Because he has access to his home, to his money. And even finds out that Mr. Hyde is the benefactor in Dr. Jekyll's will. Yeah, that that seems like nefarious business is going on there. Now, a year later, he's disturbed to find out about a murder. The murder of Sir Denver Carew, a member of Parliament. It's pretty high-ranking murder. Now, Jekyll's maidservant witnessed the murder and identifies the perpetrator as a certain Mr. Hyde who had once visited her master. Now, he discovers a broken cane in the gutter, one that he had given his friend Jekyll years before as a gift. Now, later, he finds the other half broken in Hyde's apartment. Curiouser and curiouser. Things are not looking good for Mr. Hyde. Right, and Hyde is never found, and the case is unsolved. Now, Utterson visits Dr. Lanyon, one of Jekyll's associates. And he declares, Jekyll is a doomed man. I am quite done with that person. And I beg that you will spare me an illusion to one whom I regard as dead. Oh my. Now, it's very strong language. Right. And this man dies within a few weeks, but leaves a mysterious envelope sealed, labeled, not to be opened till the death or disappearance of Dr. Henry Jekyll. Okay. I'm going to go on record and say I would open it immediately. Well, he doesn't. Oh, well, he's a better man than me. He puts it in his safe for safekeeping. So good and so moral and so upstanding, this intrepid investigator. Utterly above reproach. Now, they keep worrying about Jekyll and that he has just escaped into his laboratory, is not coming out, not part of society like he should be. Well, do they think he's like being held captive or being forced to stay there against his will? They do. They start to worry about that. They even spot Jekyll through a half-open window, saying he looked ghastly with an expression of such abject terror and despair. So he's being kept prisoner in his laboratory, working for this Mr. Hyde character. Yes, and a few days later, Jekyll's servant calls for Utterson that Jekyll has locked himself in his laboratory, or that something has. Oh, get your envelope. Saying him or whatever it is, is demanding drugs from the London chemist and would weep like a woman or a lost soul. Same, the same thing. Woman, lost soul. I mean, basically the same thing. Now they break down the door and find Hyde's body sorely contorted and still twitching on the floor and the smell of cyanide in the air. So Hyde is dead, and they assume that he must have killed Dr. Henry Jekyll. Oh, but it's definitely Hyde's body. Oh, yeah. Looks, I mean... Small and contorted and clothes that are too big for it. They also see a large mirror in the room, which is odd. And the servant whispers, This glass has seen some strange things, sir. 
Oh, that's a good line. Now they open the mysterious letter by Dr. Lanyon, who recounts that Mr. Hyde came late one night for some powders. And then he gave them the powders, and he took it, mixed it, and drank it. Now Dr. Lanyon demanded that he stay, and even brandished a pistol. And Hyde was like, go ahead. Well, and so he starts to transform back into Jekyll. Oh, so someone's seen this transformation. Lanyon sees it. He says, the creature who crept into my house that night was upon Jekyll's own confession, known by the name of Hyde, and hunted for in every corner of the land as the murderer of Carew. So he knows the secret, and he'd sealed it away in his envelope. And then died from seeing such a shocking transformation. So this, at the end of the story, is when we find out that they are one and the same character. This evil figure is also the upstanding Dr. Henry Jekyll. It ends with this full confession by Dr. Jekyll. And he laments about the difficulties of living this double life, saying, I became solely occupied by one thought, the horror of my other self. Slow clap. Yeah, so he's he's talking about these ideas of dual personalities and the two sides, kind of super ego and id, several years before Freud has published about it. It's sort of like once he knew it existed, he couldn't turn away. Once Jekyll realized this dark part of him existed, he couldn't stop feeding it? He lost control to it? What happened? He does lose control. You know, originally he needs the powders to transform, but as time goes by, he transforms against his will. He'll fall asleep and wake up as Mr. Hyde. So by empowering it, he eventually lost control. Yes. He's really focusing on the ideas of hypocrisy, of completely denying that this part of oneself exists. And kind of what can happen when that happens. Polishing up the animal nature through the rights of civility and how repression can create this estering monster beneath. Right. And, you know, his ideas that he was raised with Calvinism and that salvation through faith alone definitely plays into it. And one man, John Addington Simons, wrote... Viewed as an allegory, it touches upon one too closely. Most of us at some epoch in our lives have been upon the verge of developing a Mr. Hyde. And he also wrote, It is indeed a dreadful book because of a certain moral callousness and want of sympathy, a shutting out of hope. It has left such a painful impression on my heart. This was the Planet of the Apes sixth sense ending before those things existed this was absolutely jaw-dropping right it was massively popular i mean it's written in 1886 and at the height of its popularity it sold 40,000 copies in britain in six days wow and more than a million million in the u.s by the turn of the 20th century it's incredible. And you have to wonder what it was, again, about the story that so fascinated people and made it so marketable on such a mass scale. And one American reviewer said, We would welcome a specter, a ghoul, or even a vampire gladly, rather than meet Mr. Edward Hyde. Every Jekyll among us is haunted by his own Hyde. I will confess to you something. Really? Scouts on our confession. Okay. I had not put together that his name was Mr. Hyde. Oh, yeah, it's a play on words. There's a lot of name play. Utterson is the guy that's writing the story. Mm-hmm. Utterson. 
But yeah, I had never realized that he was Mr. Hyde because he's the hidden part of him. Right. And even at one point, I think it's Utterson that says, if he is Mr. Hyde, then I will be Mr. Seek. Oh, no, he didn't. (laughs) Originally, the story had been a little different. In the story as it exists today, Jekyll thought that he could benefit mankind by separating out that evil side of man so that the good side of man could soar to new heights. He was just going to, you know, take out his lancet and bleed himself good. But in the original draft, Jekyll's main intention is to create Hyde so that he can carry out his own evil desires. Ooh, I'm going to go with good rewrite. On with the new coat and into the new life. If we were as good as we seem, what would the world be? At night, we are our naked selves. Now, G.K. Chesterton wrote, The real stamp of the story is not the discovery that one man is two men, but the discovery that the two men are one man. Wow, that's really eloquently put. I think it's a rare thing to see both sides of humanity expressed so starkly. To see someone so good, so upstanding, as Dr. Jekyll is made out to be by his compatriots, and someone who is so depraved and wanton. Wicked. Wicked. That's definitely the word, as Mr. Hyde. It's a rare thing to see those dualities condensed so cleanly into one individual. And in some ways, it would suggest that this has to remain fiction, that this has to remain an allegorical playground. As Simons was saying, this, this just is a little too close to home. And that's where the horror is. Let me tell you about one of the things that I find scariest in the world. Whatever your vision of the boogeyman, whatever dark bedtime stories have been whispered to you by a rogue babysitter or an older brother trying to keep you up at night, it has some tenuous tie to the story of a real-world killer who took it upon himself to embody every dark corner of cautionary tales shared by generations. He snatched women from their beds as their households slept. He offered kindness and a friendly smile to hitchhikers before turning on them. He feigned injury and appeared vulnerable in order to prey upon the kindness of strangers. He asked for help, just a quick favor, before revealing his darker intentions. He exploited trust and authority figures, posing as a detective and ordering young women to accompany him to the station, brandishing a fake badge. He won the respect of unwitting citizens. He infiltrated college campuses before breaking into unbridled rage inside a sorority house. He abducted children from their safe family neighborhoods in broad daylight. Whatever you were told to be afraid of, he was one of the reasons that the warnings were passed on with such seriousness. The man that made these stories believable and real was a methodical, calculating killer that hid in the spotlight, his features blurred by the shining grace of achievement and the light of promise. He was a wonder kid, a bright young man with a nice smile and an easy manner. He was a killer, a murderer, a rapist, an abductor, a necrophiliac, a sadist, a thief, and the ultimate liar. This sounds like a story. If only it were. Theodore Robert Cowell was born on November 24th of 1946 to his mother, Louise, in a home for unwed mothers in Burlington, Vermont. Shortly after his birth, Louise and Theodore moved in with her parents, his grandparents, in Philadelphia 
And at the time, young Theodore was told that his grandmother was his mother and his mother was his aunt. I sense family romance problems. Yes. Now, soon, Louise and Theodore move to the West Coast. They live with an uncle for a time, and the uncle is apparently a very charming man. He's a professor, he teaches piano, and by all accounts, their life there is happy. Now, by some strange moment in judgment, Theodore's last name is changed from Cowell to Nelson, which is something that has absolutely nothing to do with him, but his mother, Louise, did not want him to be embarrassed by the fact that he had the same last name as his mother and his uncle, and she obviously didn't have a married name. So she was trying to give him a better reputation and make it so he wouldn't be made fun of at school. However, he's Nelson for a very short period of time. Because in 1951, his mother met and married the man that would be his adoptive father and be a very supportive figure to him throughout his life. His name was John Bundy. Wait, hold on. (laughs) Yes? Theodore Bundy. Theodore Robert Bundy. Ted Bundy. Ted, yeah, that's the one. We're going to be discussing Ted Bundy today. Ladies and gentlemen, buckle up. So John Bundy was a cook at a hospital, and he and Louise met, married, he adopted Ted, which was nice of him. And in a series of years, they had a series of more children. In 65, he graduated high school and enrolled in the University of Puget Sound, but did not find that to his liking and moved to the big city. Seattle, Washington, in 66 to attend the University of Washington. And he was very interested in this idea of Asia. Just Asia in general? Asia. He like thought sushi. it was a new frontier. He thought there was a ton of potential for economic growth. This was just going to be the thing. He had faith. He wanted to be work in the State Department and be an emissary to China. Well, good. This is his dream. Well, it's a, a good dream. It's a good dream. And he, by all accounts, is making his way there. During this year, he met a woman named, or pseudo-named, Stephanie Brooks, and began courting her. Now, she was a little older than Ted and seemed to have a really good head on her shoulders. And so she was very impressed when he won a scholarship to Stanford to study in their Asian Studies program. Fantastic. But then he decided it just wasn't for him. He didn't feel like he fit in there. It was stifling. He was maybe not that interested in Asia after all. So he dropped out of the program and shortly after that, Stephanie broke off the relationship with him, which by all accounts devastated him. And he kind of goes on walkabout for a year. He goes back to Vermont in order to visit his birthplace and kind of determines once and for all that he was definitely adopted. Definitely father unknown. And he visits people in Arkansas. He goes to Philadelphia for a while. Just kind of finds himself. He does move back to Washington in April of 1968, and he finds new purpose working for the lieutenant gubernatorial campaign for Art Fletcher. So far, sounds like an upstanding young citizen. It's true. He was kind of a rising star within the Republican Party. Well. There's something a little Paul Ryan-y about him. That's all I'm saying. So then he um, attended the Republican National Convention supporting Nelson Rockefeller, and that took place in Miami, Florida, in 68. Now, after he returned to Washington, Fletcher sadly lost the election. But Bundy had become his personal driver and very close with him, and he was making important connections. So he was getting in with the Republican Party. Absolutely. Now, he decided that after this 
debacle after the loss after the breakup all these things he just needed to get away again he was always on the road just rolling stone this guy so he goes to philadelphia and briefly enrolls in temple university but nothing really comes of that and in 69 he returns to washington and takes a job at a lumber mill this is short-lived He's not so much. It sounds kind of beneath him. Yeah, he thought so too. He agrees with you. I think he thought everything was beneath him. He wholeheartedly agrees with you. And this is short lived. Eventually, he takes a job as a legal messenger and kind of begins contemplating a career in law or politics. But then in September of that same year, he meets the woman pseudonymed Liz Kendall at the Sandpiper Tavern. And they hit it off immediately, and begin what will be a six-year relationship. She's a devout Mormon. She's recently divorced and has one young daughter, who Bundy has extreme affection for and dotes on. And after meeting her, he maybe kind of lied about already being in law school. Whoops, he hadn't quite finished his bachelor's degree yet, but no big deal. He'll just re-enroll in the University of Washington. We got the makings of a politician. Right? So he does that in the summer of 1970. Now, that same year, he'd taken a job with Pedline Medical Supplies. But he had a nasty habit that eventually got him in trouble. Was it laudanum? No, he stole medical supplies. Not those medical supplies. Not laudanum? Not laudanum. But he would steal, like, crutches. Why? Cast. What would he do with this? Plaster. It seems pretty worthless. Maybe to you. But you're not a psychopath. Thank God. Well, he'd often wear cast on his legs. One, generally. And he would use crutches. And he made a point of making a spectacle of how bad he was at using crutches. So just doing this to, like, get sympathy points? Sort of. And in one instance when he was doing this, he carried a briefcase. And he would repeatedly, like, pop it open and let the stuff spill, spill out. And he used this particular ruse on a student named Georgian Hawkins who was an 18-year-old student at the University of Washington. She was a member of the Kappa Alpha Theta sorority and lived in the sorority house on Greek Row. She was walking home with a friend, and they broke company when passing the frat house where Georgianne's boyfriend lived. Her friend continued on, and Georgianne asked her friend, Jennifer, yell back that everything is okay, and she did. Georgianne yelled back that everything was okay with her, too. But they'd never see each other again. She went in the frat house and visited with her boyfriend, Marvin, for about half an hour. But as she was leaving, she bumped into a mutual friend called Covey. And they visited for just a minute while they were standing near an open window. Now, Covey later reported that they repeatedly heard someone laughing outside in the alley below. It's ominous. Mm-hmm. And a witness spotted a man on crutches carrying a briefcase and offered to help, but he was waved off. So he continued on to his frat house. But moments before Georgian emerged from her short visit at the frat house, the man shuffled back to the shadows and waited for the next pretty girl that might come out. And when he saw her walk out of the frat house, he stepped onto the curve, walked past the fraternity house, and turned into the alleyway. He again deployed the faulty briefcase ruse, and she offered to help him, because it's a nice thing to do. Good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. And he asked her to accompany him back to his car and help him load his things. And she said, sure. His car was a Volkswagen Beetle. And it was parked in a makeshift parking lot, which was unpaved and had no proper lighting. It was the only car in the lot. He again dropped his briefcase, and when she bent down to pick it up, he reached underneath the car for a crowbar that he placed there earlier, and then brought it down on the back of her skull, knocking her out instantly. 
It actually hit her with such force that both of her earrings flew off. One of her feet came out of her shoes. He'd have to go back the next day on his bicycle and retrieve the items so as not to call attention to her disappearance. So he like went to the, back to the crime scene. Right, to clear up this. He was like, oh, she's missing things. Wow. I can't he, believe you've noticed that. No, he's very thorough. He was meticulous about disposing of all their personal items, and he would try to spread them out in different dumpsters. Clothes, ID, jewelry, any personal effects they had with them. Evil genius. Absolutely. And no one had any idea what happened to her. There's no signs of foul play, no signs of a struggle, nothing. This woman just vanished into thin air. But yes, those are the kinds of things he would do with the supplies that he stole from Pedline. And these kind of stories, these events are one of the many serial killers that inspired Silence of the Lambs and Buffalo Bill. He does this at the beginning of Silence of the Lambs. Right. We all American Girl. American Girl, I was about to say. Ruined that Tom Petty song for many people, including us. It didn't ruin it for me. I just block it out because I'm an American girl. That fat man in a Hawaiian shirt at the Tom Petty concert told me so. That's very true. <laughs> Now, shortly after taking the job with Pedline, he offered to serve as kind of a narc with the University of Washington police force. He was like, hey, I think these hippie protests, I think they're getting a little out of hand. I don't like some of their methods. I think they're a little too violent. More irony. Yes. Just like Brody's irony. So he would, you know, rat out any nefarious goings on on campus. And he was also very troubled by the the substance abuse that he saw in his peers. And so he was, you know, on that case too. Never you worry none. Ted's on the case. Ted Bundy's got it. He's got it. Now he did have it when he started working at the Seattle crisis clinic as a telephone counselor. He was basically answering the calls at a suicide hotline and he was apparently very good with women. I mean, he's credited with saving people's lives. Absolutely. And there was actually, there's one story and I, couldn't find good documentation on it that he saved a three-year-old boy from drowning also around this time which would be really interesting but during his time at the seattle crisis clinic he met ann rule do you know who ann rule is nope okay she's a crime writer and she wrote the book the stranger beside me oh yes 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 and she was very good friends with ted and she had no idea that any of this was going on and she kind of launched an incredible true crime career off of this horrific experience of having worked as a crisis counselor with Ted Bundy. You deserve it. You deserve it, Ann Rule. So in 72, he graduates with a degree in psychology with distinction from the University of Washington. I mean, he just remains this upstanding citizen while he's doing all these terrible things. I mean, just like Brody did, just like Jekyll does. I mean, just even like Robert Louis Stevenson does, like without probing, he looks like the best of people. Shiny, pretty, happy guy. And he and Liz are happily dating all the while. He's even got a Mormon girlfriend. I mean, he's basically Mitt Romney. I'm sorry. I'm going to stop comparing Ted Bundy to Republican politicians. I swear to God. I swear I am. (laughs) But to contrast Bundy's college experience, which by all accounts, you know, got flipped around to the right foot and came out well. There's another series of ruses he would use. And this kind of comes from the combination of two stories of two survivors who were nearly abducted by Bundy, Kathleen and Jane. And both describe him wearing a sling and a makeshift cast on his arms. He would carry a satchel of books and fumble with them and drop them. Sometimes he even had 
papers wrapped in parcel post packing with strings and looked very discombobulated and he was trying to hold all these items and he just looked so pitiful and forlorn and he'd generally stand in a place where if you were passing by it would seem like this guy with all these books is probably headed to the library but generally once the women had all the books in their hands when they stopped and they offered to help he'd be like oh no no i'm going to my car it's just over here don't go to the car oh sure i'll go to your car because you're cute seriously that's like what everybody said it's like i kind of did it because he was cute Right, I mean, he has a trusting face. And he's so confident. And if people told him no, he made it a point never to blow up. He's just like, okay, thanks, I understand. And so he didn't call attention to himself. So one of the women says, I turned around, and there was a man dropping books. He was squatting, trying to pick them up, books and packages. And I noticed that he had a sling on one arm and a metal hand brace on the other. I just noticed and was he was unable to pick up so many things, and I assumed he was going into the library. And I asked him if he needed help, and he said, yeah, could you? He was thin, but his face is a blur to me. I don't recall his features at all. I do remember he was dressed sloppily, but not real grubby, but nothing outstanding. He may have worn jeans with a wrinkled shirt, with the shirt tail out. I thought he was going to the library. He was headed that way, so I thought that's where he was going. But that same sidewalk actually leads up over a little bridge and away from the library. So he would then direct him to the car, which was generally in a semi-secluded area. I was extremely cautious while I was with him, the woman would later tell detectives. I never gave him the opportunity of walking behind me. It was a dark road. There were no streetlights on that road, but it wasn't completely black. So he would lead her to the passenger side of the vehicle. He would generally try to park like parallel to a log, etc., where there wasn't enough room for more than one person to stand there and open the passenger door. And he would try to attempt to open the door with his key. And so Kathleen, the woman who's been telling this story, laid the backpack on the ground and leaned it against the log and said goodbye. But he didn't want her to leave. He needed one more thing. He dropped his key and then took his right hand and pretended to feel for it. Do you think you could help me find it, he said, because I can't feel anything on my hand. Kathleen was not about to bend down and start looking for that key. Let's step back. And see if we can't see a reflection in the light. So he stepped back behind the car, kind of behind the car into the side. And I squatted down. And luckily, I did see the reflection of the key. Then another woman, Jane, says, as we approached the beetle, he began complaining that he was in pain. And he hadn't done that previously in the walk. Coming up to the passenger side of the car, Jane was carrying most of the books. And he says to her, open it up. And then he attempted to hand her the keys, but she refused. So he unlocked the door and blurted out, Get in! I lost his little veneer. His mm-hmm. She's clothing for a second. Yes. And he tries to smooth it over. He says, Oh, could you get in the car and start the car for me? But Jane wouldn't. Smart girl. When I looked in, what really got me was that the passenger seat was gone. That's what really bothered me. It was gone. And without a doubt, these stories play in to the urban legend. Absolutely. Like This is in every email your auntie sent you. When you start college, seven warning signs you're being stalked by a murderous predator that we all laugh off because they're ridiculous and silly and they perpetuate rape culture. But maybe, maybe read it. <laughs> maybe read it and then, then talk about how it does. I'm somebody's auntie, y'all. So some people who are Bundy scholars, if that's a thing that exists, and I guess it is, suggest that his body count at this point in his career may have already been three, but none of that can be directly confirmed. 
Now, after graduating with distinction, he did apply to law school, but he was not accepted because of a low LSAT score. So in the meantime, while he was waiting for that to pan out, he took a job with the Harborview Mental Health Clinic, where he began counseling people in person. So there are a select group of people who live in Seattle, Washington. Who have had counseling by Ted Bundy. And it really helped, you know? He had a lot of insight. To psychopathology. (laughs) Psychopaths make wonderful counselors. They understand all the mechanisms of why you're feeling what you're feeling and don't think you should feel anything. And they just don't care. (laughs) I don't recommend you get your therapy from a psychopath. Just... Just so we're all on the same page. Now, allegedly during this time, he had an affair with one of his co-workers. And this shows that he could be very duplicitous in his public or personal life outside of the sphere of his dark Bundy life. He could lie to Liz and go on about his business like nothing mattered just as easily as he could lie to Liz and go on like nothing mattered about murders and things. And this is a pattern that continues with him throughout his life as a free man. He has multiple affairs, always different women. And he gets very emotionally involved. It's not like a casual, oh yeah, we knocked boots one time. I mean, do you think it's emotional? Do you? Or do you think it's like a possessive? Oh, it is. But he gets gets them very emotionally involved. It's classic narcissistic behavior. Yeah, no. And in a very pure way, this man is a narcissist. And he goes through the narcissistic cycle that we describe in our Bluebeards episode. We're going to reference all the episodes. (laughs) Let's figure out a way to reference the dog episode. Oh, it happens. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, What's he do to the dogs? Sergeant Stubby. No. You're a monster. He is a monster. But that's beside the point. So. Oh, wait. We talk about wolves. Wolves. Dogs. Got it. Got it. <laughs> Can we do dolls? Please tell me no. So. No, we, we actually could do dolls, but we're not going to. So during this time, he also becomes part of Governor Dan Evans' reelection campaign. Fighting the good fight. Now, his duties while working for the Evans campaign included following his opponent, Albert Rossellini, wearing various disguises and reporting on his activities to the campaign. He's almost literally wearing like sheep's clothing. Oh, yes. Constantly. Yes. Now, good news. On November 7th of 1972, Dan Evans is reelected. The governor of Washington. So, success there, Bundy. He's got the N. He does. And he would actually have a personal letter of recommendation from Governor Dan Evans when he applied for law school, recommending him as a hardworking, competent young man. He's so clever. He is. Just the things he comes up with. He's so good at pretending to be other people. It's uncanny. He's going to be a great lawyer. Woohoo! Now, shortly after this... On the 11th of November, he took a job with the Seattle Crime Commission. Not committing crimes. The commission that... Well, he was. He was, (laughs) but meh. A lawman, you know, fighting the good fight. And during this time, he wrote an official report on sexual assaults against women in the Seattle area. Well, ironic. Don't Don't you think? think? (laughs) Now, Bundy knew a thing or two about assaults on women in the Seattle area. Well, that's an understatement. But he learned a lot of important things about what a detective might be like, the things they might say, the ways they carried themselves, and he would put that to use, too. So he would actually impersonate a detective. This guy has no boundaries. No, no, he does not. So in Bountiful, Utah, a young woman named Carol Durant, who was 18 years old, was leaving her employer and returning home around 5 p.m., 
changed clothes and left for the Fashion Place Mall because that was the cool place to be. In Utah. Oh, yeah. And she was making her way around to an alternate entrance when she ran into a nicely dressed man. No, where she ran into a man who she describes as, quote, nicely groomed and better than average looking. That's what I hope I'm described. She also said he was wearing patent leather shoes and identified himself as Officer Roseland. He asked her if she'd parked a Camaro in the other lot. And then he told her they had caught a man trying to break into it. And he asked her to come to the vehicle and make sure nothing had been damaged or stolen. And when they approached the vehicle, he asked her to unlock the door and open it. And she did so on the driver's side. And she said that everything looked okay. And then while he stood in the open door, he asked her to open the passenger door. And she said, no, no, that's fine. Everything looks fine. And this obviously put a kink in his plans. Because then he began hunting throughout the mall for his imaginary partner, who was supposedly waiting with the imaginary suspect. Commitment who supposedly had an imaginary complaint for Carol to sign. Shockingly. They didn't find him. I can imagine. With the nerve of this guy. The imaginary partner, the suspect, and the statement were all nowhere to be found, so he was frustrated by his partner's absence. Obviously. And told her that they must have gone across the street to the precinct. Wait. He's actually going to take her to the police station? It was a, it was a laundromat. Okay. And he goes to the door and he's like, oh, it's locked. Everybody must have gone to the main precinct. I'm guessing he knew it was going to be locked because he's just that evil of a planner. Yes. And Carol was like, this is weird. Why is the whole precinct locked? Where is everybody going? And she goes, okay, can I see some ID? And so he takes out his billfold, flips it open, and lo and behold, there's a badge. Was it real? I don't know. He flipped it closed really fast and put it back in his pocket. Hmm. But she'd seen the badge. Was it psychic paper? Yes. Oh my God, if Ted Bunny is a Time Lord, I quit. <laughs> evil Time Lord. No, I quit. Or an evil leaper. Oh no. And so he's like, I need you to come to my car with me and I'll drive you down to the main precinct. And so she goes to the beige VW Bug and he lets her get inside and asks her to fasten her seatbelt. But she's like, no, I'm okay. But he does reach across and lock the door. And she's like, what are you doing? And she says like this, his entire face changed and he begins to attack her. And so she grabbed the handle of the passenger door and starts trying to get out. But he reaches across and latches handcuffs to one of her wrists. Oh my God, he's got her. She starts screaming, what are you doing? Let me go. And she tries to fight him off. And in the flailing that's happening as they're driving down the road, he accidentally latches the other handcuff to the same wrist. Oh, what good luck. Absolutely. So she manages to get away from him when he accidentally runs onto a curb. And so she runs into the middle of the street and flags down a car being driven by an elderly couple. And they were shocked when they stopped to let her talk, like rolled down the window to see what was wrong with her. And she like opens the door and gets in their car. Awesome. And she's like, that man tried to kill me. That man tried to kill me. And so they immediately turn the car around and drive to the police station. The real one. The real one. Not the laundromat. No, no Officer Roseland in sight. His imaginary partner was there, drinking out of a giant mug. Incredibly, like, while she's making a report to police officers, he's not given up. He remembers reading about a high school play that was going to be going on in the area. No, bullshit. And he goes to the play and starts trolling for another victim. A high schooler. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Bundy abducted high school student Debbie Kent that same night from outside high school play in a family neighborhood. He actually spoke with her drama teacher who would later identify him in a lineup. Oh, shit. Her body's never been found. Oh, damn. 
So yes, he made good use of his police training. He was able to use it as a disguise to hide his true nature. In 73, he was accepted to the University of Utah Law School. And as I mentioned, he did have that personal letter from Dan Evans recommending him as a good, upstanding citizen. Thank goodness. Now around this time, his body count is, in some circles, thought to be maybe four. But there are no murders that can be definitively linked to him at the time. Now, in 73, instead of going to the University of Utah, he does start to go to the University of Puget Sound Law School, but doesn't think it is up to his standards. Nothing is. He says, eh, it's just dingy, there's no ambiance. But he does run in to Stephanie Brooks. Do you remember Stephanie Brooks? Girlfriend number one. The one that got away. The one that rejected him. When he dropped out of Stanford. Out right. Out of his Asian studies program. Yeah. She's just like, you have no drive. You have no ambition. What are you ever going to do with yourself, Ted Bundy? I'm going to be world famous. And she's like, yeah, right. Who's world famous because of Asia? Nixon? I don't think she said that yet. <laughs> Another guy famous for something else. <laughs> so he rekindles his relationship with Stephanie. And he actually introduces her to all of his Republican compatriots. While he's still dating Liz. None of them know about Liz, the woman he's been dating for years, but everybody knows about Stephanie. Mormon in the closet. In November of that year, he took a job with the King County Law and Justice Planning Office in Seattle, Washington, and compiled an official report on the recidivism rate of female sexual offenders. Wait, like female rapist? No, no, no. This was a poorly worded title that actually referred to male offenders who offended against female victims. That's terrible phrasing, and again, a little too ironic. Yes. Again, I'll point out that he definitely had things to say on the subject, because by now, he had absolutely begun fantasizing about and planning these kinds of escapades himself, If there, even if there has not been one confirmed through confession and forensic evidence. And this is the story of his first non-abduction. So this is just attributed to... This one is definitely him. This story I'm about to tell. He confessed. They found the bodies. It's true. Okay. And this is the first, chronologically, that is definitively linked to him. And this is the story of Linda Ann Healy. She was a 21-year-old University of Washington College student who lived with several roommates in a house just off campus. Now, the group usually left the front door unlocked because some of the keys had been lost... And they were waiting for new ones to be made. I'm sure they didn't leave them so someone can make wax impressions. Oh, if only. It would have been so much more convenient. But she was last seen at 12.45 a.m. when she went to her basement room. And roommates were awakened by her alarm going off the next morning at 6 a.m. She worked at a ski resort and would have to get there to like do the morning weather call-outs at 6.30. So she had an early job. But they discovered she was missing when the alarm just kept going off. And they weren't immediately dismayed. Yeah, because she could have just got up early, forgot to turn her alarm off. Right, her bed was made neatly. Yeah. And the door leading outside to the basement was locked. And, you know, normally she kept that locked with a key from the inside. But they were alerted that she did not report to work at 6.30. By 4 p.m., a friend began making calls to try and locate her. Around 6 p.m., her father and boyfriend showed up to her house for a prearranged dinner. And they were told that Linda was missing. And so they called her mom. And mom came over and said, call the police. And they're like, well, it's not been long. And she's like, call the police. She's having none of it. So officers came out and took a report. 
but they left not taking the situation terribly seriously. Yeah, I mean, that happens all the time. I mean, college kids go missing, they're off with their boyfriend they didn't tell you about that has a motorcycle and tattoos. His name is Stev, Mom. He's a carpenter. But around 8 p.m., they received a heavy breathing hang-up call. That's, uh, I hate this. <laughs> it just sounds so creepy. And then another. Wasn't the weepy voice killer? Oh, my God. So homicide detectives were sent out around midnight, and the officers came out, unmade the bed, and revealed that there was a pillow without a case, which was unusual, and the pillow itself had blood stains, and there was a big blood stain noted on the sheets. And then they checked the closet and found that a nightgown had been hung up on a hanger, which was odd, and it had a blood stain on it as well. How'd they miss all the blood? <laughs> well, it was made up. The bed was made to cover the bloodstains, huh. like the comforter was pulled over it. And then the nightgown was hanging up on a hanger in the closet, which oh, didn't no. automatically set off alarms, but then they took it out and looked at it more closely. Holy shit, there's blood everywhere. Right. And her backpack was gone, and some clothes were missing. And initially, they believed that she might have had a nosebleed and left in the middle of the night to seek assistance. But they found it odd that she'd not told anyone that she was leaving or taken her bike. And then they thought it was especially odd because she had been planning to come home and cook dinner for her parents and her boyfriend the next day, which was a really big deal to her. They'd been planning on it for weeks, and she missed that date. Mm. But it still seemed more likely to them that she just walked out, that that somebody had slipped in while the entire house was occupied and everyone was asleep, attacked and subdued an adult female, then taken the time to hang up her nightgown, make her bed, grab a backpack pack some clothes, carry her upstairs through the house, and walk out with her into the night. That just seemed incredibly unlikely. It is incredibly unlikely. It is. It's incredibly unlikely that someone would be this, like, meticulous. And brazen. There's a ton of adult humans in that house. Which is, like, how planned it is and how he thought of every single detail. I mean, hanging up the nightgown? Would that even occur to you? No, like, why wouldn't you just take it? So in December of 73, he was accepted to the University of Utah Law School again. Another one. And in January, he abruptly ended his relationship, nay, engagement with Stephanie, the woman who had wronged him back in the day. So she was only brought into his life again so that he could summarily dismiss her. Evil bastard. As soon as she she was convinced that they were engaged and she was calling him her fiance, he cut ties with her. So just... Purely payback. Purely. Now, at this time, there are maybe five murders and maybe one attack attributed to him. And he becomes the precinct committeeman and is an elected delegate of the 43rd District to represent the Republican Party of Washington. So he was an elected official? Everyone likes him. He's got that smile, you know? So charming. He just says exactly what you want to hear. He makes everyone feel great about themselves. In March of 74, he took a job with the Department of Emergency Services in Olympia, Washington. Now, things do start to disintegrate around the 23rd of April of 74 when he misses a caucus and starts kind of backing away from politics. He missed the June 1st convention and then missed the July 5th through 6th state conventions for the Republican Party. It's worth mentioning, though, at this time, those Five maybe murders and that one maybe attack are now joined by two confirmed murders. So while he is serving as an elected official, he has killed two more women. 
Now, he took a job with the Republican State Central Committee in May of 74 for Ross Davis, who was the chair of the Washington State Republican Party. And in July of that year, he became Ross Davis's personal assistant. Now, Ross Davis would also write a letter of recommendation for Bundy. This guy probably had a letter of recommendation from the Pope. But by July of 74, the number of confirmed murders that could be attributed to Bundy had grown to seven as he is serving as Ross Davis's assistant. Just a little hobby. I tried to cook a little. He is. He's an American American psycho. And now in September, there's bad news for Utah. Something terrible happens. He moves there. That's true. At the time of his move, the confirmed murders attributed to Bundy have grown to 10. During his time in Utah, he begins to slip more and more. From the time that he moves for law school to the time that his career is suddenly ended, the number of murders attributed to Bundy has grown to 22. Wait, why does his career suddenly end? He's arrested. Seriously? For what? Possession of burglary tools and evading arrest. Routine traffic stop. Seriously? That's it? Yes, that's it. Let me guess, he got off. No. Oh, good. No, they found him. They're just like classic. Like, they'd stop him and they're like, you can go free, nice young man. And then he goes kill 50 people. Well, he was found guilty of aggravated kidnapping in the Durant case. And he was given a 1 to 15 year sentence. And he was going to be tried for a murder in Colorado. It's worth mentioning that by this point, Bundy has killed in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Utah, and Colorado. Well, how did they track him down? How did they s- stick one of these murders to him? The bureaus were actually working very well together. Um, they were all cooperating. Now, in Washington, the task force assigned to string of murders that they were not calling a string of murders because they it's did not, not want not the public color. to nope. freak out. Well, we didn't have the word yet. They're like, not, not, a, not a pattern. Nothing to see here. But the officers who were working on this behind the scenes were working on what was known as the TED Task Force. No. Because he abducted two women in one day on the 4th of July at Lake Sammamish. And people had overheard him talking to these women. He was telling these different people, various different people, that he needed help unloading a sailboat. And a couple of people even walked back to his car with him. And they're like, where's your sailboat? And he's like, oh, we have to drive to go get it. And they're like, I didn't sign up for this shit. Yes. And so a lot of people turned him down that day. But a lot of people overheard him talking to the women because it was crowded. It was full. People were picnic blanket to picnic blanket all over the lake. And one witness said that she overheard him tell one of the girls who was abducted that his name was Ted. He used his real name? Well, he did that because he didn't want to run into someone he knew walking with this woman and then be like, hey, Ted, and have said that his name was John Mm. or whatever. Maybe. Or maybe he was just that arrogant. Probably just that arrogant. And interestingly enough, they also mentioned that he spoke with a faint, British accent, and that was a tick he had Just through his entire. No, it was a tick he had through his entire life. Like he couldn't shake it. It was this weird accent. Do they do any brain imaging on him? I don't know. I think I'm they so took. Curious. I think they took his brain. <gasps> I bet you can go research that. Go research that. We'll do another episode. Okay. Because <laughs> we're not even getting close to covering all of it. Now, the Colorado murders were interesting, and they happened right before his capture. And one in particular stuck out in my mind is particularly horrible. And that is the Julie Cunningham murder. And this is actually Ted's confession. He says, we started with a little small talk about getting off work. 
and me hurting my leg skiing using this, the injury ruse again. And so he brought Julie to his bug and asked her to help him by putting the crutches in the car. And he says, when I opened the door, she bent over and then I hit her on the head and pushed her in the car. She was unconscious and I drove away and I put handcuffs on her. And shortly after arriving to the location he selected, he began kind of torturing her. Do you normally do that with his victims? I don't know if he normally let them become conscious again. I don't know that that's something that he was... I think this was a luxury he was afforded because of the secluded nature of the location he chose. But he was very sadistic and he had some really unusual predilections. He would generally knock women in the back of the head with the crowbar to sedate them or subdue them. And the method of death was generally strangulation, which he would carry out while he was penetrating them sexually. He wanted the moment of death to be at that time. And he would often return to the corpses periodically, usually two to three times, varying on the weather. And sexually molest the corpses as well. Where do you keep the corpses? Collected graves. Like, he would generally put them all close to each other. But were they buried underground? No, not generally. Like, under brush and stuff until he was done with them and then he would bury them. Wow. He was an elected official. That's all I can say about that. He was an elected official. He had a girlfriend. He had a basically stepdaughter. And a handsome smile. It's fucked up. In this case, this is what I found particularly horrifying. With Julie Cunningham, he confessed to choking her until she passed out. And then he assaulted her and left the door of the car open and waited for her to wake up. And so when she came to, she saw the open door and ran. And she just ran as fast as she could, started running for the road. And he waited and let her have a head start. And then he ran after her. And he caught up with her and strangled her to death and pulled her body back under a tree and gathered up her clothing and personal items and took them out of the area with him and disposed of them. He's just playing with them. Just I cannot. Ugh. He's so sadistic. I, I cannot believe this man exists. I don't know why he's such a conundrum to me. I've talked about loads of serial killers on the show before, but there's something about that veneer that is, I think, I think, I think he would have gotten me. Like you would have helped. Yeah. I, I, you know me. You know my crazy thing about helping people, like how I call like 311 when I see an accident on the side of the road. I would have helped. I would have carried the books. I would have gotten got. I think that's why it's such a scary story is because you can so easily place yourself in that helping this guy with his books to his car position. You know, helping a guy with a flat tire. I mean, he looks unassuming. He's hurt. What's he going to do to me? I can hear me going, Jacob, what's he going to do to me? He's got a freaking cast on his leg. What's he going to do? Beat me with his crutches? I can hear this conversation happening. Yes. Yes, he will. Oh, but we were we were apprehending him. Oh, let's do that. Yes. So he's apprehended. He's charged with the kidnapping of Carol Durant, who comes forward and identifies him like a boss. That lady is brave, brave, brave kudos carol and also the drama teacher comes forward and identifies him and and the ted talk team ted don't (laughs) say ted talks about ted bundy you're gonna give them bad branding i bet there's one oh god so they're circling the wagons and they're getting closer and closer into him and they know that they want him for murder and he knows that they want him for murder but he is just charming and guys how can i help you and like one day he runs into one of the investigators who's tailing him 
as they're trying to up the charges, they want to get this guy for murder. And he says, Jerry, you seem to be a pretty good detective. I think I'm a damn good detective. But Jerry, you're just grasping at straws. Just straws, Jerry. But you keep at it, Jerry. If you find enough straws, maybe you can put a broom together. Wait, so he went and talked to his tail just like Gacy did? Oh, absolutely. He would, like, take pictures of their cars and write down their license plate numbers and report that they were there and, like, say they were harassing him. And he would, like, anytime he saw him, he would, like, invite him in and talk to him. Oh, yeah. Very, very amiable with them to their face and then bitched about them all the time. And they came into his house to search one day. And he's like, you just let me know if there's anything you need, guys. Never ask, like, what are you looking for? Why are you here? Just his overconfidence. And this was a written exchange, letters, between two of his friends, Tim Clancy and Larry Vorshaw. At the time when, like, the Seattle papers were running headlines like, Ted Bundy, not Ted, in quotation marks. (laughs) So Tim Clancy writes, Dear Larry, wow, that's unbelievable. Considering the type of mentality that the person or person involved with these bizarre murders, it's frightening. But to actually believe such a person is an acquaintance, I dare say a confidant of ours, is more than I can comprehend. And yet, I will try to relay to you my initial reaction and thoughts. As such, I don't believe my correspondence at this time should go beyond you, in that I only received your letter this p.m., and do believe further thought should be given on my part as to more particulars before notifying the authorities. Initial reactions and opinions have a habit of becoming fact with some. And Larry writes back, As for a few personal remarks, which were mere gut reactions and observations, I guess Ted B. could be quotation mark Ted, but I don't want to believe so. None of us do. Bundy is a strange bird, and if anyone fits the description of enigmatic, he does. But maybe that's why we, from your letter, I gather you think so, believe he could be the sick fiend. So he was eventually captured, charged, sentenced, and put in jail. Yes, but on one to 15 year sentence. They haven't gotten him on murder yet. Bundy's on the case. Literally, he's on the case. He's arguing his own defense. Of course he is. Yes, he is. Because, I mean, he's a law student. He went to class like three times. He went when to he was, like four different law schools. He went to like four different law classes. He was really had a truancy problem. But on June 7th of 1977, he escapes from the Pitt King County Law Library. He breaks out of jail. Yes, but he's apprehended 10 days later, not to worry, not to worry. Oh, what did he do in those 10 days? Mostly wandered around and ran into people to tell him, that told him to be careful because that Ted Bundy character was out of jail. Oh, I'm so glad they were looking out for this stranger. But then, on December 30th of 1977, he escaped from the Garfield County Jail. What is he getting to this time? Florida. He's the original Florida man. Unfortunately. So in his second jail escape, he flees to Florida, where nothing good has ever happened. And he takes this weird roundabout route and stays in like YMCA's. He steals his defense fund to go on the lam. He has $700 cash to work with. Like from the government? No, from Good Samaritans. (laughs) Oh, thank goodness. And a girl that he'd been riding at the time, like hid clothes for him. And he was able to change into street clothes. And it was a whole thing. But he escapes and he goes to Tallahassee, Florida. Because he knows Florida State University is there. And he takes up residence in a local off-campus kind of like apartment housing building. And he poses as a law student because that's what he knows. He's been posing as a law student for quite some time. And starts using the assumed name Chris Hagen. And everybody just kind of buys it. But one night, 
a student named Nancy Neary, who's 20 years old, is returning home from a date to the Kai Omega house where she lived. Don't help him with his books or crutch or leg. <laughs> no, no. This is my fear. This is the thing I'm scared of. And she kisses her boyfriend goodnight and goes to unlock the combination lock keypad and notices that the door's been left ajar. And so she takes a minute to make sure that it's fastened back behind her. And then she works her way through the house, turning off all these lights that had been left on, which she thought was weird at the time. And then she hears footsteps coming down the stairs, kind of in a hurry. But she assumes it's just one of her housemates because she lives with a whole bunch of people. And she's walking back to the foyer, the big open area in the front, when she stops dead in her tracks and realizes that it's a man running down the stairs. Holy fuck, that's scary. My greatest fear is like locking the door to my house and realizing I'm locked in the house with a bad guy. Like that to me is the scariest, scariest thing. What happened? So he crouches at the bottom of the stairs and she sees that he's holding the doorknob in one hand. Oh, like off the door. Mm-hmm. And, and holding a club in the other. And so she just freezes and he opens the door and slips out. God, she lucked out. I mean, I, I hold my breath every time I think about it. She later describes him as wearing a blue toboggan-like cap pulled down to his eyes, a blue jacket, lighter colored pants. She said she didn't get a really good look at him, but that he was a white male and young and maybe like 5'8", 160 pounds, thin build, clean shaven, with a dark-ish complexion, a long nose. The jacket was waist length and he was carrying a large stick. A woman named Cheryl Rafferty had been nearly abducted by a man matching Bundy's description as she tried to get in her car. That same evening, another woman had reported seeing him peering into windows twice. But Nancy is still freaked out back in the Cayo house, and so she immediately alerts the president, Jackie McGill. And Neary and her housemate were trying to explain what they'd seen. A woman named Karen Chandler walks into the room holding her head, and all she could say was help. She was bleeding profusely. So they led her away to another room, and some of the other girls called for help. Kathy Kleiner, who's Chandler's roommate, was found sitting up in bed, moaning and rocking back and forth. She was covered in blood. So the FSU officers arrived and found Lisa Levy lying face down on her bed with no vital signs. They tried to give her CPR, tried all life-saving measures, transported her in the ambulance to the hospital, but she was declared dead on arrival. She'd been severely beaten. But her cause of death was strangulation. Uh, she'd been bitten on her buttocks, and her, one of her nipples had been completely chewed off. Holy fuck, this is just going, if possible, just going into more and more insanity. It's, like just, it's like, I can't even fathom the depths this is going to. Like, it sounds trite to say, but it's like berserker mode. Oh yeah, it's like, this is my last chance. <laughs> so back at the house, one of the girls, Melanie Nelson, asked them if anyone's checked on Margaret Bowman. Because she hadn't come out of her room. So someone entered the room, but then exited as soon as they saw blood on the pillow. Officer Brannon, who viewed the body of Margaret Bowman only moments after her discovery, noted in his report, Margaret Elizabeth Bowman was found face down in her bed with no vital signs present and no hope of gaining any. Interestingly, a young woman who was near the closest bar to the Cayo house was approached by an unknown male who asked, Are you a Cayo? She said no, and he replied, You're lucky. So he just decided to take his rage out on the only the Kyo house and the girls there? I don't know if that actually happened. I don't know if that's something that like got mangled in translation. I don't know if it's something that she remembered as more significant out of a drunken haze. I don't know if that actually happened, but it's scary. It does sound kind of apocryphal. 
But it's great. It's like a young <laughs> woman, an unknown man, you know, like it's, but it doesn't even need that. So he leaves the sorority house and while all the ambulance are going by, all the police cars, all of this is happening at 3 a.m. He makes his way to a nearby kind of college residence area on Dunwoody Street. A woman named Debbie Ciccarelli reported that she heard Cheryl Thomas, another FSU student, pleading with someone. And then she said there was a loud pounding noise coming from the apartment. Then everything was silent. So she began calling out Cheryl's name through the thin walls. And then she made repeated phone calls to her apartment, but there was no answer. So eventually she got worried enough to call the police who discovered Cheryl unconscious on the floor. There was a pair of pantyhose lying by her neck, as if the killer had been interrupted before he could complete the act of strangulation. She would survive the attack. So in the span of five hours, maybe, if even, he had seriously assaulted three women and killed two. How was he captured? He was not captured until he committed another murder. It was, um, it was a 12-year-old girl. It was his final murder. Her name was Kimberly Leach, and she was abducted by her, from her neighborhood. He was actually arrested for driving a stolen vehicle and they put together who he was and constructed a case and eventually they would use dental impressions to match his teeth to the bite marks left on one of the girls in the coyote house. And I mean, he literally fits every scary story. Somebody's going to up and grab you. Someone's going to grab you if you help them. While it's not the true origin of these stories, he is... Definitely the reason they're still around. He's the modern archetype. For sure. He's terrifying. There were times when I was writing the summaries of these stories and I would get chills up my back. But he also fits in with the other archetype we've been talking about. That idea of that dueling personalities. I mean, he really fits in with Hyde well because he starts off as this kind of fine, upstanding young citizen. And starts to slowly progress into this murderous, vile creature. And to the point where he can't help himself, there's only that left. And he's essentially killed his Dr. Jekyll. The most interesting thing about Bundy is when he is put back into captivity, when he is recaptured after the series of Florida murders, and eventually he will be executed in the state of Florida. But the interesting thing about Bundy is that when he's put back in that setting... He has to find that mask again. And he again becomes that charming, likable, affable man that he had previously been able to hold together whatever the circumstances. Let's discuss something that I think is the crux of all of these characters is really cleanly expressed in Ted Bundy. And this is maybe we call it the the duality of Ted. So from a young age, he had this thing that would come over him that would suddenly make people who loved him become very afraid of him. And it was sort of indescribable. Uh, A great aunt was standing with him at a train station, and she said something about him just changed, and she suddenly felt afraid of him. I wonder what it was. I wonder if it was just like his stance, his demeanor. There are several accounts of people trying to talk to him after he's had one of his murderous episodes. Like, for example, on the night where he attempted to abduct Carol Durant and eventually abducted Debbie Kent, People said he was more addled. He was hard to talk to. He was not responding when people were talking to him. He was in almost a fugue state, sort of dissociated. And I, I wonder if there is some mechanism that snapped back and forth. I mean, there could be, you know. I mean, I'm not giving him a plausible deniability here. There's no deniability, but it's just like if he does just kind of fugue a little bit. You know, you don't have to have a complete amnesic 
fugue to have something similar. But one psychiatrist who examined him described his functional social self as a mask of sanity. So he's like always a crazy person who puts on the mask. Are you going to say the Batman thing? Yes. Don't make, <laughs> don't make Batman about Ted Bundy. Okay. You're thinking it. Say it. Bruce Wayne is the mask for Batman. Thank you. <laughs> Another psychiatrist, Dr. Carlisle, reported, I feel Mr. Bundy has not allowed me to get to know him, and I believe there are many significant things about him that remain hidden. Along a similar line, Dr. Vano Austin, a prison psychiatrist, concluded his report by saying, It is my feeling there is much more to this personality structure than either the psychologist or I have been able to determine. However, as long as he compartmentalizes, rationalizes, and debates every facet of his life, I do not feel that I adequately know him. And until I do, I cannot predict his future behavior. It would be almost impossible to predict his future behavior. Uh, he's going to kill people. But how, when, where, why? As soon as you let him. Always. Done. <laughs> now, interestingly, there's a collection of witness statements from before he was captured where he was described as not a clean-cut person, kind of scrawny-looking, a physically dirty man whose speech was neither clear nor coherent, greasy, dirty, looking weird, a scowling man. This is extremely interesting to me because if you look at pictures of him, like objectively, he's a good looking guy. Mm-hmm. Objectively, without thinking about all the other terribleness. But then he's symmetrical. But then with the these descriptions, he seems like exactly what you would describe if you were like, think of a murderer. You know, think of a terrible person. He's scrawny and greasy and gross and disheveled. Like, why are those descriptions that way? You know, it's just like in Jekyll and Hyde where no one is able to clearly describe Hyde. He's small. He's dark. He's sometimes even described as like, like a distorted image. And it's interesting how those perceptions change. Well, and it's also worth noting that his charm offensive was not working on victims he was failing he tried to abduct like a 13 year old girl and he failed like she was not buying it in florida he had just devolved into something unrecognizable he was losing his mask absolutely so after his capture liz his longtime girlfriend who did eventually like attempt to help police and things so good on her she says I asked him specifically about the Florida murders, and he told me he didn't want to talk about them. But then, in the phone conversation, he said that he felt like he had a disease, like alcoholism or something, like alcoholics couldn't take another drink. And he told me it was just something that he couldn't be around, and he knew it now. And I asked him what it was, and he said, don't make me say it. And so there's definitely an addiction allegory within Jekyll and Hyde as well, because... This is something he needs, but he thinks he can get away with it. He thinks he can get rid of it at any time. And, I mean, Bundy is literally describing it as an addiction. Now, after his capture, he was evaluated by a psychiatrist named Dr. Tenney, and this is from one of his reports. The interview was conducted in a conference room, which was pleasant and well-lighted. I believe there were five deputy sheriffs guarding the only exit. Mr. Bundy, a 32-year-old, handsome-looking man, dressed with the casual elegance of a young college professor. He was meticulously groomed, well-cared for, fingernails, and freshly washed hair. He was in total command of the situation. The deputy sheriffs appeared more like part of his entourage than policemen guarding a prisoner. So we switched back. The mask is firmly affixed. What explains that? The need for it? He needed it before. Yeah, but I wonder if he was drugged. Maybe. You know. 
Would have done him a lot of good before. That's very true. Too little, too late. But upon pronouncing his death sentence, the judge remarked, Take care of yourself, young man. Take care of yourself. I say that to you sincerely. It's a tragedy to this court to see such a total waste of humanity. You're a bright young man. You'd have made a good lawyer, and I'd have loved to have you practice in front of me. I bear you no animosity, believe me. But you went the other way, partner. Take care of yourself. I sentence you to death. Yes, very interesting assessment by the judge. People want to like Bundy. He just won't let them because he is a horrible, to quote this judge who was so admiring, waste of humanity. But we have things like psychiatry and psychology to sort of understand what can can make a person like this. And I can't imagine sort of in the day and age of Stevenson, what people read into these really sinister characters. I can't imagine what they thought was wrong with them. I imagine it's racist. There's always the racist component, okay. don't you worry. Yeah. But what what do you know about this this history of understanding here? Well, listen, there's a lot you could talk about, about like criminology and psychology in the Victorian times. But a main theme that is hit on with Robert Louis Stevenson's story and is completely personified by Ted Bundy is something called atavism. Oh my, this sounds outdated. Well, not necessarily. Okay. So from that switch from the 18th century to the 19th century, you really see a, a change in gothic horror. You know, you go from that fear of corrupted aristocracy, the clergy represented by a haunted castle or an abbey, to more of a fear embodied by a monstrous body. This is your creepy-looking protagonist. It can be. And so, it, I mean, a it... great early example of that, especially from the physical aspects, is, is like in Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster. Okay. So the grotesque. Yes. Now, biomedical sciences was being used to construct class and national bodies and conjure up specters of degeneration, deviance, and racial diversity. Now, Kelly Hurley wrote in The Gothic Body that in this late Victorian fiction, there's this obsession with what she terms the abhuman. So, like, you said, like, the grotesque. Within a context of, like, general anxiety about the nature of human identity permeating late Victorian and Edwardian culture. An anxiety generated by scientific discourses, biological and sociomedical, which serve dismantle those conventional notions of the human. So in like the most basic terms, is this kind of what we think of as monsters? In a way, because you can say monster and you can think of a Loch Ness monster. No, 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 I mean like, um, like universal yeah. monsters, like Universal Studios monsters. Well, yeah, because they redid all of the... Kind of gothic horror stories, and in that vein, when they started making their more original ideas. So, like Wolfman, Dracula, things like that. Are they kind of. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Yeah. Yeah. But they started coming with these ideas of criminal atavism and degeneration, this kind of gothic version of reverse evolution. They came up with this kind of socio cultural evolutionary model. Now, it was actually developed independently of Darwin's theories, and it was more kind of based on our friend Lamarck. Oh, good. And Lamarckian evolution. So it's science. Right. So it stressed this distinctly kind of anthropological approach to social problems. 
which characterize a range of discourses, including criminology and psychiatry. But, you know, at this time, the British Empire is spreading out... Beyond the confines of proper civilization, dare you say? Right. And so anthropology was focusing on that, but also focusing inward on these other domestic savages, Mm. which resided in the very heart of the civilized world. So criminologist Cesar Lombroso put it, true savages are in the midst of our brilliant European civilization. So is this where you get things like phrenology and like skull measurements and stuff? Is this where that kind of comes into play where people are dissecting faces and saying, look at this nose. Clearly he's a criminal. It definitely plays into it without a doubt because they thought that these good European men that should be civilized were reverting back, were de-evolving to their natural savage state. Through some mistake in breeding or... Oh, wait, this is Lamarck. So it can be like, your mom was... Your mother was a whore and you're gonna be a whore. Just right, learned we're just, behavior. We're going back. We're going back to what these savages in the outskirts of the empire had. In one case, described by Daniel Tukes in the Journal of Mental Science in 1885, I was talking about moral insanity. Hmm. Such a man as this is a reversion to an old savage type and is born by accident in the wrong century. He would have sufficient scope for his bloodthirsty propensity and been in harmony with his environment in a barbaric age or at the present day in certain parts of Africa, but he cannot be tolerated now as a member of a civilized society. But what is to be done with this man who, from no fault of his own, is born at 19th instead of a long past century. Are we to punish him for his involuntary anachronism? Oh, he goes in so many directions. He does like so many loopity loops. I'm not sure whether to pat him on the head or tell him to go to his room. Because he's like, it's not their fault they're born this way. Which is kind of a an interesting idea for the time. But then he's like, they're like the savages of Africa, which is terrible. <laughs> Right, there's like this evolutionary reversion they call atavism that provides the scientific explanation for the involuntary anachronism of the modern criminal. It's involuntary because it's biological. You're literally regressing and reverting to your earlier ancestral age of development. So they were developing these ideas of like psychiatric Darwinism. And Henry Maudsley was one of the chief proponents of this and he used evolution to explain the importance of biology and hereditary factors in manufacturing quote deviancy so in 1870 he wrote in body and mind truly a brute brain within the man's and when the latter stops short of its characteristic development as human when it remains at or below the level of an orangutan's brain it may be presumed that it will manifest its most primitive function and no higher function. Some very strong facts and arguments in support of Mr. Darwin's views might be drawn from the field of morbid psychology. We may, without much difficulty, trace savagery in civilization as we can trace animalism in savagery. First of all, is morbid psychology a major somewhere? Because I'm signing up. Let's rename the show. Could. But criminality is something that no civilized man would commit. This belonged in the past. Only explanation is that it's hiding within our biology. I mean, this is before the ideas of DNA. Mm-hmm. 
but they still have this kind of concept. There's, it's hidden away because we may have evolved from animals so we can revert back to our animal nature. It's always hiding there under the surface. So this environment is ripe for a Jekyll and Hyde. Right, because Maudsley wrote that morals are the latest and highest product of mental evolution. So, of course, they are the first to go. Oh, clearly. And now David Punter even described Jekyll and Hyde as an urban version of, quote, going native. <laughs> Jekyll can only remain respectable, wealthy, and beloved on account of the existence of Mr. Hyde, the embodiment of his lower nature. Before Hyde is made flesh, he represents all that Jekyll wishes to push away in his respectable, gentlemanly self. Now, Stevenson writes in Jekyll and Hyde, Jekyll says in the book, If each hall, I said to myself, could be housed in separate identities, life would be relieved of all that was unbearable. The unjust might go its way, delivered from the aspiration and remorse of his more upright twin, and the just could walk steadfastly and securely on his upward path, doing the good things in which he found his pleasure, and no longer exposed to disgrace and penitence by the hands of the extraneous evil. So he's saying, he's almost trying to evolve to a more pure level by completely eradicating the vestigial animal instincts. Now that's exactly what he thinks he's trying to do. It doesn't work out. And he even physically is transforming into a lower stage of man. He's described as dwarfish and ape-like deformed, hairy. And Jekyll explains this physical transformation in that this part of himself was, quote, much less exercised and much less exhausted. And hence, as I think it came about, that Edward Hyde was so much smaller, slighter, and younger than Henry Jekyll. Now, Hyde murders Sir Danver Carrow with an ape-like fury. He was trampling his victim underfoot, hailing down a storm of blows in which the bones were audibly shattered and body jumped upon the roadway. And the fear, the fear the Victorians had that, that this was hiding under their polite, highly evolved selves and that it could come up at any time. And once it was released, just like with Mr. Hyde, just like with what happened with Bundy, it couldn't be put back in the bottle. This is why women had to cover their ankles. Because animal urges were lurking right under the surface and they must not be provoked. Right, and Oscar Wilde wrote, The scientific principle of heredity has shown us that we are never less free than when we try to act. It has hemmed us round with the nets of the hunter and written upon the wall the prophecy of our doom. We may not watch it, for it is within us. We may not see it, save in a mirror that mirrors the soul. Heredity is soul your destiny i mean we still think that today we think that you know it's a combination of nature and nurture but we definitely give a lot of credence to the idea that you know you are who you're the person that you're born right i mean and and there's an equation of that with truth i hate to get all lady gaga but it's like born this way it's just sentiment we embrace that we accept that oh without a doubt there are some features and parts of us that we are that are born but then idea of these like hidden traits that can pop up the word atavism is still used today by whom my scientists okay real ones you know traits can appear disappear over time not as the result of a newly mutated gene but by an old gene that's usually turned off kind of turning back on Mm -hmm. and you can see this in people like born with tails okay or in embryology or with chickens born with teeth 
So did this kind of go the way of the dodo long round about the end of the Victorian period, or did it evolve? (laughs) One would like to think so. But in the 1966, there was a large study that came out that cited a new genetic problem that was definitely the cause of aggressive and violent males. Oh, well, let's just let's just zap it. Well, so this is something called XYY, and it's when you have two Y chromosomes. Okay. Which is a thing that can happen, right? Oh, no, definitely. It, it exists, yeah. So this large study was originally done in developmentally disabled patients at a state hospital in Scotland, and they came to the conclusion that patients with this karyotype were more aggressive and violent. It's in our genes. Mary Teller, who was a huge proponent of this, described them as super males. And Richard Speck was even falsely reported to be an XYY carrier. He's in our writing on the wall episode. So Dr. Mary Telfer of the Elwin Institute of Pennsylvania described the characteristics of a person possessing an extra Y chromosome as extremely tall stature, long limbs with strikingly long arm span, facial acne, mild mental retardation, severe mental illness, including psychosis, and aggressive antisocial behavior involving a long history of arrest, frequently beginning at an early age. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that she may have had a really bad sample population to work with. Like, this is being conducted specifically in a state asylum? Yes, that's a good point. But that didn't stop numerous scientists from investigating this. Well, I mean, investigating is okay, right? Including doing chemical castration. Okay, so maybe we draw the line before we get there. It had had a 30% success rate. Of chemically castrating people? Of... Dropping their aggressiveness. <laughs> oh, I'm going to go with that's not worth it, but whatever. So in December of 1968, the Journal of Medical Genetics published the first XYY review article, which reported no overrepresentation of XYY males in nationwide chromosome surveys of prisons and hospitals for the development of disabled and mentally ill in Scotland, and concluded that studies confined to institutionalized XYY males we're guilty of selection bias. Told you. So there are some traits you can get with an XYY factor, such as a slightly lower IQ and some learning disabilities. And they do have a slightly higher rate of criminality due to these learning disabilities and lower IQ. But the crimes are not related to aggression. They usually have other factors related to this that put them at a higher rate of being imprisoned, such as lower socioeconomic status and problems with law related to minor crimes. So in the 60s, this became a huge research topic. They thought they were cracking the code, finding something that was causing us to revert to our animal nature. Atavism and ideas of these genetic disorders that can cause this do not explain criminality. They do not explain the dark side of humanity. This is something that's, that's ever-present. We don't need hidden genes to reappear, have the evils of humanity rear their ugly head. We're not reverting to savages. Because the one idea they had right is that that portion of us, what they called a savage, that idea, those, that kind of dark side... It's always there. I have some interesting writing I want to share with you. It kind of explores this idea a little further. Society wants to believe it can identify evil people. It's not practical. If someone does something antisocial and deviant, 
That is a manifestation of something that is going on inside. Once they do something, they can be labeled. Predictions can't be made until that point is reached. I think you can say that the influence of the person's family history was positive, but not positive enough, not enduring, perhaps not strong enough to overcome the urges or compulsions that resulted. In this instance, the influence of family and the environment in which this person grew up were positive, but not so positive as to prepare the individual. You take the individual we're talking about and you subject him to stress. Stress happens to come randomly, but its effect on the personality is not random. It's specific. That results in a certain amount of chaos, confusion, and frustration. That person begins to seek out a target for his frustrations. The continued nature of his stress, the stress this person is under, the nature of the flaw or weakness in his personality, together with other elements in the environment, offer him a logical target for his frustration or escape from reality that yields in the situation we're discussing. There is no trigger. It's truly more sophisticated than that. A point would be reached where we'd had all of this, this reservoir of tension building, building and building. Finally, inevitably, this force, this entity, would make a breakthrough. Perhaps on another night, he'd see a woman walking home. He followed her. Eventually, he created a plan where he would attack her in the house early one morning. He sneaked into her house and he jumped on the woman's bed and attempted to restrain her. All he succeeded in doing was waking her up and causing her to panic and scream, and he left very rapidly, and then he was seized with the same kind of disgust, repulsion, and fear, and he would wonder at why he was allowing himself to attempt such extraordinary violence, but the significance was that while he did the same thing he did before, stayed off the streets, vowed he'd never do it again, and recognized the horror of what he'd done, and certainly he was frightened by what he saw happening. It only took him three months to get over it this time. And then the next incident, he was over that in a month, until it didn't take him any time at all to recover. We are talking about anonymous, abstracted, living, breathing people. But they were not known. To a point, they were symbols. But once a certain point in an encounter had been crossed, they ceased being individuals and became, well, you could say problems. That's not the word either. That's when the rational, normal self would surface again and react with fear and horror. But recognizing the state of affairs, the normal self would sort of conspire with this other part of himself and conceal the act. The survival took precedence over remorse. The normal individual began to condition mentally, out guilt, out guilt, using a variety of mechanisms, saying it was justifiable, it was acceptable, it was necessary. He's writing about that dueling nature. And I think it's interesting to point out that the part he's actively having to suppress here is the would-be Jekyll. He's having to stamp it out. Out guilt. Out guilt. Over time, he's weaning himself from that. It's an active process. From his moral evolution. Right. So all of that was taken from interviews with Ted Bundy. In third person. It was his confession in third person. He could never make a confession in first person. Not at any length. He could talk about specific acts and kind of recount when and where and how. But it lacked the uh, in-depth read that he allowed himself when he moved to talking about this individual. It was almost as if it wasn't him. 
No, it was the entity. It was the hide. He called it the entity, the disordered self, the malignancy. And he referred to the dominant part of his personality as Ted. And that's what's so frightening about these stories. It's why the ideas of Jekyll and Hyde have stuck around and why ideas of someone like Ted Bundy have stuck around. Of course, he fits with all of those warning stories. But also, it's like he was a normal guy at first. He was an upstanding person. Dr. Jekyll was trying to help people. But he crossed a barrier that put him in touch with a darker part of himself. And he became addicted to exploring that darkness. And he lost control. And the malignancy took over. And that is the reason these ideas stick around. Is because we fear that that can be within anyone. And the possibility that we could revert to that is always there. And once it's let out of the bottle, can you put it back in? I have to believe that in most cases, the vast majority of cases idea that our little evils can take us over and stamp out our better nature. That idea, I hope it's just a story. Yeah, I think that's just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.